Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we are interviewing Lisa Cohn. Lisa is a writer and an author who was born in New Jersey and grew up in the East Village of New York. She now lives in Pennsylvania with her husband of nearly 20 years and her two beautiful children. Lisa's recent book, To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence, is a memoir of being raised in and torn between two conflicting worlds. There was the world she longed for and lived in on the weekends, her mother's world, which was the fanatical puritanical cult of the Moonies, and the world she was forced to live in during the week, her father's world, which was based in sex, drugs, and the squalor of life in New York City's East Village in the 1970s. She now owns a leadership consulting and executive coaching firm and spends much of her time speaking, writing, and teaching and presenting her ideas and approaches to life and to business. Lisa has been featured on Business Insider, Megan Kelly Today, Daily Mail, Thrive Global, Marie Claire, and more. And now she's been featured on this podcast. Lisa is rad and I hope you enjoy her story. Please check out her book, To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence, a memoir. You can find it on Amazon. And episode 23, I was thinking, let's do this. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to talk a bit about your life and your book. Can you tell us a little bit about when did your book first come out? It was published last September, September 18th, 2018. So it's almost a year. Okay, awesome. And how's it been? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, how's it been having that out on the shelves now? It's been wild and it's been wonderful and it's been hard and it's been emotional and it's been intense and it's been amazing and it's been all of that and more. I I like to say I didn't, I was so doing it that I didn't actually think through what it would be like when it was out there. Right. Kind of what I do. Um, But yeah, so (laughs) So it's been amazing. It's been amazing, but incredibly intense and still, you know, tectonic plate shifting in my whole being. So it's been wild. and uh, your book um, is about being your your childhood, but all, mm-hmm. part of your childhood was that you were part of, I, so I hear that this is a, I read that this is a pejorative term, but it's the right. one that I know that, that you were part of the Moonies. Yes. The Unification yes, Church. The Unification Church. As, as I like to say when I describe my childhood, the best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden were at my mother's wedding. Because because I was a Mooney, I was best friends with his kids, and my mom did get married with 2,075 couples in Madison Square Garden in 1981. And on the other hand, the best cocaine I ever did was for my father's friend, the judge, because where I I was a Mooney, I lived with my dad in New York City's East Village, and it was, uh, I like to say, a life of sex, drugs, and squalor. That's my dad's life. So those were the two contrasting, mildly crazy worlds that I grew up in at the same time. Right, right. And and your parents, so you you have an older brother, Robbie. I do. 
And uh, your parents were, you called them by their first names, Mimi and Danny. Yep. Yep. We're not, to my father will still say, I'm a person. I'm not a label. Call me by my name. If you call me father, I'll call you daughter. If you call me daddy, I'll call me daughty. Call you daughty. Call me by my name. And that's, <laughs> he's still, yes. And some people be like, did you, does your dad know you call him Danny? I'm like, yeah, he knows. Yeah, he knows. So when you, you, how many children do you have? I have two children. And when you look back on this life that you had and, and you look, you know, compared to your children, right? Because all of our childhoods, we have this feeling that it's normal. I mean, any of the abnormalities, I think for the most part, most of us didn't realize until we, you know, hit a certain point, we looked around going, oh, that's okay. I mean, mine wasn't like that, but it, you know, there were things about it that were definitely abnormal. When you think about your children in the context of what you went through, what's that? What comes up for you? It, well, it's insane. As, as I always say, when it's all you know, it's all you know. So truly, I knew my childhood was weird, but it wasn't. And, and I'll fast forward and we'll come back until I crawled into Al-Anon and I would tell my story and people's jaws would drop. It's yeah, my brother yeah. says, when you're in this room of a hundred people and you tell your story and they all go, oh my God. You're like, <laughs> oh, wow, their lives are hard. And they're like saying that about me. There must be something there, right? right, right. I, I didn't know. Um, and I look at my kids. I still remember many years ago, my older child with a friend had like messed up my bed or something in my, in the bedroom. And I'm asking you guys, please make the bed. And, but the kids were complaining and I wanted to be like, do you want to know what I was doing when I was your age? Cause when I was 10, I was sh- shopping and cooking and cleaning. And I was like, yeah, okay. Maybe it's not the same. Yeah, right? not so the I truly, same. My kids have this wonderful idyllic childhood with normal issues. Like, can I have two desserts? And mom <laughs> gave me rules and I don't want to go to bed now or I don't want to leave. Um, yeah. So it's, it's quite a contrast to look at compared to the stuff that I went through. Yeah. Right. Right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up, um, in your childhood, maybe before you guys joined the unification movement? Yeah. Because what I like to point out to people that by the time we joined the unification church, it was a haven because right. my parents, my parents were babies having babies. They got together when they're 18, pregnant, brother at 19, me at 20. So they were way too young. They were children of the 60s. They were hippies. And life with them was with, uh, they split up when I was two. My dad moved out and I was traumatized. And we lived in the basement apartment of a building and my mom would leave to walk down the hall to go to the laundry room. And I would stand in the doorway screaming and crying. And to this day, I think, why didn't you just take me with her? But I mean, that's how traumatized I was. And apparently right. my brother used to say, Mimi's going to leave too. Danny left. Mimi's going to leave too because he was a good older brother. <laughs> and it, it was, she was into encounter groups and primal screaming and macrobiotic diet. And we right. had no processed food and we ate on the floor. And she had some mildly, very dangerous boyfriends. And, you know, my dad, on the other hand, was either traipsing the world and living in Morocco or St. Thomas or living in New York City bartending and doing a lot of drugs and living a crazy lifestyle as the, you know, a New York City downtown hippie. So it was just a, we were, you know, children of flower children in the, everything that that means with the instability and uh, craziness, you know. And so then by the, again, by the time we were, I was in, um, between the summer, between my uh, second and third grade, my, we, my mom bought a van from my father and we were going to drive across country from the East Coast to California to live on a commune. And instead, my grandmother, my mom's mom was diagnosed with cancer. So we drove across state in New Jersey and lived with my grandparents. 
and my grandmother passed and my mom stayed. We lived with my grandfather for a while and that's when she discovered the church. But, and yeah, then that's when she had her no talking days and, you know, she was into Indian ashrams and Hinduism and Buddhism and she was just a seeker. And so it was a, just a lot of classic 1960s instability, I guess you would say. Was it classic? I mean, you know, it, was it just that, and I, I don't mean that to, to, yeah. to give you a therapy session to call you out on. I just mean, I just mean like, you know, I don't know at what, was it classic or, or I know it didn't end classically, but was it classic in the sense that that was a common thing happening around you guys? Uh, so no, I think in the sixties, there definitely were flower children having children, but it wasn't happening a lot around us. I always felt completely out of sorts not fitting in, but you, Mimi and Danny, people would say, did you say mommy and daddy? And I'd be like, no, Mimi and Danny, right? I felt very, I wanted, I was very straight laced and wanted to be conservative and wouldn't cross the street at a red light. And I, you know, my parents were just both very free spirits and to this day, somewhat self-involved spirits. So it, it was, I guess, a classic hippie upbringing, but there weren't that many of us around, but yeah. Yeah. So that not makes a lot. Sense. Yeah. So there was. So it wasn't community, at least. You didn't no. have the community of aspect of that. So that's actually, you know, that's actually an interesting point and piece of your story, which is that this may have been normal for many children, but it wasn't. You didn't have it around you, with which really made it stand out. Yeah. And so the story I like to tell, right, and and how the, the Unification Church was a haven. So a couple years ago, I read Scar. Tissue, I think, by uh, Anthony yep. Kiedis, lead singer of the Hot Chili Peppers. And I called my brother, Robbie, and I said, you have to read this because his description of his life with his dad was our life with Danny, only he was on the West Coast, we were on the East Coast, and his dad had him smoking pot at the age of eight, and Danny had Robbie smoking pot at the age of 10. But it was, it was the first time I've read my life in someone else's story. Mm. And Robbie reads it, and he calls me, and he says, first of all, at least he had blanking consistency because we did go back and forth. Yeah. And, he goes, and then he says, do you think if we hadn't joined the church, I would have been a heroin addict? And I'm like, <laughs> well, you're smoking pot at 10. And what Danny used to like to say to us, you know, as we grew older was like, don't ever shoot up smack on second Avenue because you'll pass out. If you want to shoot up smack, come upstairs. Like speed is okay to shoot up downstairs in, the, in traffic, but smack is not safe. Because right. you'll pass out and you'll get run over. So come upstairs to shoot up smack. So right. those were those were our guidelines. Right, right, <laughs> so right. There are good chances that my brother might have become some sort of addict into much much stronger drugs. Right, if we hadn't joined a puritanical church instead. Right, right, right. It wasn't looking it wasn't looking good in that direction. It wasn't looking good in that direction. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have because at that point I was so you know there are many ways to react to crazy environments. And mine was to hunker down and try and control and be as um, perfectionistic as one could be. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, my teacher made up a grade AWD, A with distinction, because I got so many A plus pluses. She didn't know what to do with me. So that mm. was, I was like the goody two shoes, hunker down, do it all right, right. person. And right. my brother was the free spirit who would have gotten into more of that kind of trouble probably than I would have. Right. And and you talked about moving in with your grandparents and how the structure and the rules yeah. there actually felt um, a, like a very positive thing for Absolutely. you. Very Absolutely. comfortable. Yeah. I wanted... I mean, kids need structure and rules, but and that's one thing we really didn't have was structure and rules. When your grandfather... So you, you were living... When your grandmother died and then your grandfather, he starts to descend into depression. Yeah. 
and you're taking care of your grandfather and your brother, cooking, cleaning, shopping, all of that. And how old were you then? I was 11. Yeah, my mom, we, we met the church when I, my mom at the church when I was 10. And then by the time I was 11, she sat us down and said, what do you, what do you kids think I should do? And we said, you should leave. And so she left, uh, moved into New York City to live in the church, ironically, to work with the group that helped people who had kids and couldn't move into the church. But she moved into the church and left us with my grandfather. And I was 11 and I, yeah, he was slowly going to deeper, deeper depression. And I, that's when I was shopping and cooking and cleaning and running the house and getting AWDs and being the star <laughs> in the school play and that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So then when did you move in with Danny, your dad? So my mom, my grandmother died and my grandfather got depressed and my mom moved out and he got more depressed and he was a lawyer and a judge and he stopped practicing his cases because he was depressed and then he got disbarred and then he got even more depressed and apparently the police were circling the block on a suicide watch for him and it came to a point where I've heard after the fact that he had to go to court because of the cases he had in practice and he could have gone to jail. So instead of putting him in jail, they admitted him to the psych ward of the hospital and that's when I was in the beginning of seventh grade. And uh, so they came and they got Robbie and I out of school that day. And they kind of, you know, sent us to one neighbor and then sent us to other neighbors and kind of shuffled us around for a while. And his brother and sister-in-law came into care of us for a little while until finally someone told Danny what was going on. First, they went to try and get my mom to come back and she refused to come back. She said, it's not my problem. And um, that's brainwashing, right? She said, that's not my problem. Then finally, someone told Danny what was happening because we had never told him that my mom had left and he came in, got us and took us into New York City. And that's when we moved in with him. So the beginning of seventh grade is when I moved from New Jersey into New York City with my dad. Just out of minor curiosity, did they think, did the police circling the house think he was going to come outside and commit suicide? What was the value of? I'm not entirely sure. And <laughs> I have, you know, and as I always tell that story, I think the same exact okay, thing. Okay, good, good. Because I was totally like, what, fair, what they... but that is what I've been told, right? Yeah, so, yeah that they were I, circling. Again, and I had no concept of that. A lot of yeah. us, you know, by that time we were believers. So we supported my mom. So when you believe something so fervently, you, your bot, your brain casts out anything else. Right. So right. I had no opening other than this is the right thing. So I, I, it's a very good question. Maybe I'll call my cousin who told me that and ask that very question. I'm like, I got asked in a podcast. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm just, not sure. Just, just out, out of curiosity. curiosity what is, would that do? Yeah. Is that know. a technique? Is that, yeah. So you moved in with Danny and yeah. you're already a believer. So in, in the church. So then when you move in with Danny and he's not living that lifestyle. Do you think that that kept you out of that? And how long did you stay with him? I lived with him. So I moved in in seventh grade and I lived with him all the way through high school. Um, and to me, he was Satan. who's was living Satan's lifestyle. Mm. So it, I think it actually probably reinforced our belief in the church. Mm. Um, so we would spend the weekdays at home with him and every weekend or every holiday or every summer go to either my mom in the church or when my mom was far away, just go to the church, anywhere to be in the church. And uh, I think the the going back and forth was mildly crazy making, but I think also the in the long run, the outside world probably helped us leave mm. easier than it would have been if we'd never had it. But I think also living with my dad and his lifestyle and how much that terrified me forced me even stronger into the beliefs of the church. Cause that, again, that was my structure and my safety. And as I say, there is nothing as intoxicating as knowing you have the truth. And if you know that you have God's truth and you know what you're supposed to do and you know, right from wrong, and you know, you're evil and sinful, 
I, lo- I love realizing how sinful I knew I was by the age of 10, right? Right. But how evil and sinful you are. And you, so it just, I think it pushed us even stronger into following right. Reverend Sung Moon as my Messiah. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, I did a minor amount of research. I didn't get as much as I'd like to. So I'm going to look to you to be my Wikipedia on all things unification, <laughs> all things Mooney. Exactly. <laughs> I, what, what were the Moonies about? What do people know and why was it a cult and not a church? Okay. So the Unification Church is founded on the belief that all churches, all religions, all people should be unified under God. It is based on Judeo-Christian thought combined with a bunch of Eastern philosophy and dualism. It's so, and it basically says, you know, Adam and Eve were created by God, and then Lucifer, the archangel, seduced Eve, had sex with Eve, and that's the fall of man. And then Eve seduced Adam, and they had premarital sex before they were supposed to. They were supposed to grow, mature, and become a family and have the, you know, family of God, kingdom of heaven on earth, but they didn't, they fell through this sex and this original sin. And so then, since then, God has been working, you know, trying to get people to come back to make mankind pay for their sins and come back. And everybody keeps failing. And then Jesus comes and Jesus is supposed to not be crucified, but stay on earth, marry, have a family and create the kingdom of heaven on earth as well Mm. as in heaven. But instead Jesus is crucified. And so the Messiah needs to come again. And if you read the divine principle, there's a lot of explanations and calculations that explain how the Messiah can only come from Korea and around 1920 or 1930 which just happens to be where Reverend Moon is from and where right. he was born, right? So they never actually say he's the Messiah. Right. But all, everything points to that. Everything. Right, right. And so it's, and what makes it, the difference to me between a cult and a religion, and it can be a fine line and people debate it all the time, but it's the extremism, right? It's the us versus them. It's the, we are the chosen ones. We are the saved ones. We have the truth. Everybody else is sinning and going to hell. It's the control. So we literally were taught that if we ever questioned anything, it was Satan trying to win us back. So as as soon as your mind begins to think or to question, you have an idea for yourself, you're like, get out of me, Satan, get out of me, Satan, get out of me, Satan. So you, you are controlled in how you... That you don't think, how you think, what you think, what you believe. It's that, you know, structured control of this is the absolute truth. And therefore, you know, the Messiah can say the sky is green today and the sky is blue with yellow polka dots tomorrow and go kill people because they're making the sky red. And it's true because it comes directly from God. So it's that right. that extremism, that control, that that separation, the way it, it keeps so that you know, you can look at a lot of different religions and see at what point in my mind it crosses over. I mean, and there are specific definitions of cults, but that is truly it's that control of what you think, it's the control of what you do, it's the control of what you believe, it's the control of where you live, it's the control of how you live, it's that extreme control whether physically, mentally, and or emotionally, that makes it not a, about more than faith, about, and about right. faith in a person or a belief versus just faith in God, whatever that is. So. so what did that look like in the Unification Church? Did you have to give up all your worldly goods to the church or that kind of thing? I did not have any worldly goods to give up, but yes. <laughs> At 10, you didn't have any worldly I goods? I have a whole heck of a lot, no. But I gave up my mom, right? Literally. Right. Did she give up anything, any of her stuff? 
she didn't have a whole heck of a lot either, but she moved in. She gave up whatever she had, um, and she spent her life living in the church. She gave up her kids, right? She moved right. in. She moved in and spent much of her time in the church actually raising other people's children because in the church, the, the big mass weddings are called blessings. So people would be matched by Reverend Moon. He'd point to the, you know, this woman and that man and say, you two should marry each other, and they go and get married, and they'd be called blessed. And their children were called blessed children, and they were born without original sin, the sin from Adam and Eve and the fall of man. And so people would have children in the church, and then they go and they put them in a church nursery and go out and do a mission, travel, go fundraise, raise money, witness, proselytize, work somewhere, travel to a third world country to spread the truth. Um, and my mom would work in this nursery and raise all these other children. So invariably now there are groups for people who are born and or raised in the Unification Church. And I run into people and they're like, oh, your mom took such good care of me. And I'm oh. like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Not me, but you. Yeah, I know. It's a, yeah, it's a, gosh. It's a fascinating experience. So yeah. Why didn't she bring you guys? It's a very good question. Uh, when when my grandfather went to the hospital and we moved in with my dad, there was a process where they were deciding where we would go and I was begging to live with my mom, begging both my parents. And my mother says she thought we would be safer and more secure and like better cared for with my father, which is kind of really nice and kind of very ironic. She just <laughs> thought that the church was less stable. I'm pretty certain that the people who were in the church probably said, your children will be better off with their father than living in a church center because it would lessen my mother's ability to give all of her time and energy. But I don't know that's exactly what was said. But I mean, so in the church, there's this concept of indemnity where you, you know, the individuals, you know, you pay indemnity, you suffer, you suffer to pay for the sins of your ancestors and you suffer so that your descendants don't have to suffer. Mm. So the individual sacrifices for the family, family sacrifices for the society, society sacrifices for the nation, nation sacrifices for the world. So my mom gave us up and in us giving my mom up, not only did she move out, but we were told so many times how lucky we were not to live right. with her. Right. So she moves out and you can't miss her and you can't be sad and you can't be mad because that's sinful. So it, it's just this kind of wind up in your brain of, yeah, control of emotions. And, you know, it was, it was like my gift to God to not live with my mom. So, mm. Right. So, I, I, okay. That makes sense. Why did you, I mean, so far it sounds like not something that I would want to do, but doesn't sound abusive. And I know there was, there, what were some of the things that ultimately led you to leave? It's funny. There's a lot of layers in what you just said. So I, in this process of the book going out there, I reconnected with my best friend from fifth grade. And she said to me, I used to, we, apparently we would take her in with us on the weekends. I used to love going in with you. Everybody was so sweet and wonderful. Right. So as a kid, it was this really warm, right. welcoming, wonderful place. And you had hope and everybody loved us because we were young and we were cute. And compared to living with your, that's what I'm thinking, compared yeah, to living with Danny. It was, there was a lot that was wonderful, absolutely right. safe and and more stable than living with my dad, which is what which is part of what's great. Like, yeah, the cult is yeah. better, right? Right, which is um, what the, the insanity piece. Right, which is part of the insanity piece. And and I, if you if you read the beginning, the like forward to the book, my brother does say, well, first of all, he jokingly says, I got it all wrong because memory is a very funny thing. Right, but right. But he also says, I was way too nice on everyone. And and I've had many other kids, you know, born and or raised, second gens were called, who say the same thing. Interesting. My, I mean, I was best friends with Reverend Moon's kids with one of his daughters. My experience was, was 
crazy, was painful, was emotionally. I mean, there were definitely, if you read the book, I have a dear friend uh, from when I was in school in Scotland and he read the book and he's like, what was with all those men in the church, right? I definitely was emotionally incested by a number of people. Oh yeah. I I mean, you talk about that. You say, you talk about your dad's friends who- Look, at, it was interesting because when you talk about he looked at me and I had that squirmy feeling, or like yeah. there was so, and I kept thinking to myself, I wonder what she doesn't remember. I wonder yeah. what that's about. Like, because yeah. you know, as children, you feel things that maybe you, you can't things, articulate. Yeah. And the same thing happened in the church. I had the, the very crazy thing about my childhood is I had a number of brothers, older brothers, you know, nine, 10, 12 years older than me, who were completely inappropriate with me but when I was 14, 15, 16 and didn't know, right? But at the same time, their love for me, as messed up as it was, was part of what kept me from right. really crashing and burning. So it's so I, I did not... Conflict. Do not remember experience explicit sexual abuse in the church. I did not experience explicit physical abuse in the church. There are many people... There are many cults where that exists. There are many people in my church and outside of my church and not having been in a cult at all who have much more explicit, abusive, traumatic experiences than I did. It was mostly the mental, emotional, you know, when I was in, I was on Megan Kelly when the book mm-hmm. came out and then in the backstory, the producer said to me, were you brainwashed? And I'm like, that's a good question. And actually what I said is I wasn't brainwashed because I didn't have a brain to be washed. I was pickled, right? And so... There's research that shows what growing up in a, an environment like that does to your brain and how it carves it in very traumatic, addictive behavior, warped thinking, lies kind of ways. And my brain is just a product of everything that happened compiled with the strict control of the church. So it was, yeah, but, but no, was I beaten? Not that I remember, you know? Did anything abusive in that way happen? Not that I remember, right? You know, so there you have it. And so what what finally got me out is twofold, which talks about some of the hypocrisy of the church. So the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, my dad sent me to music camp. I'm convinced to keep me away from the church. You know, he would do anything to keep me away from the church because he didn't like spending money on us, right? Um, it was money for drugs and money for, at that point, his Baroque recorders and for his lifestyle. But he sent me to music camp. And for the first time, I had friends who were gay or bisexual that I knew were mm-hmm. out. And that's a huge sin in the church, a okay. huge sin. And so I write to my mom and I say, what should I do? These are my friends. They're wonderful. And she says, you have two choices. You can convert them or you can stay away from them because they're evil. And for the first time, the very first time my brain goes, I don't know that if I agree, right? That I, I don't, these are wonderful people. I don't know. And I come back from music camp. And again, I had been best friend with Reverend Moon's daughter. And another friend of mine who was a blessed child, was my age, our Sunday school teacher, one of those inappropriate people in the book, our Sunday school teacher seduced, raped her. She's 16. He has an affair with her. And in order to get the blame off of her, like the focus off of her, and because she was incessantly jealous of me, she spread rumors about me. And Reverend Moon heard the rumors and believed the rumors and made a decree that only blessed children, children born in a marriage that he arranged, could play with the true children, his children, in order to keep me away. So as I like to say, my Messiah said I was bad and banished me from his children. Right. And so you put those two together. And I went, I went to my senior year of high school 
And I, I made a conscious decision. I thought, okay, I came into the church as a 10 year old, as a child, just following my mother. Right. And I want to spend the rest of my life here. But in order to do that, I need to make an adult decision at the age of 17, an adult decision to join and never question. So I'm going to pull back a little bit so that I can decide to come back all the way. And I, for the first year, I start to hang out with people at school more. I have friends who are still my best friends to this day. And I get more involved in school and I find more unconditional love there than I had in the church and more, yeah. right, and more freedom, obviously. And then I, you know, experimented with the little things here and little things there, ended up very drunk at a party and kissed a boy. And then I had a boyfriend, which is the big sin, right? Premarital sex is the big sin. So I have a boyfriend and all hell breaks loose and everybody's screaming at me and worried about me and confronting me and locking me up. Because you're still going back to the church? I'm still going back to the church and on so, the weekends. And, and you yet, told them about the boyfriend? Yeah, I must have done that because everybody's <laughs> like, oh, you're going to fall, you're going to sin. Right? And so then I, uh, I decide I will break up with him because I have to, because I can't let God down. And I, I go off to school um, and he stays in New York and I go up upstate New York and I don't break up with them. And that becomes a process. As my brother says, I'd never left. I just slowly drifted away. But in my slowly drifting away, which leads to the recovery, you know, my, my freshman year, I almost jumped off the bridge because I was at Cornell, right? And so there's yeah. a number of bridges. So freshman yeah. year, I almost jumped off the bridge. Sophomore year, I became anorexic. Uh, junior year, I developed what some people call a mild cocaine addiction and uh, <laughs> whatever that is. And senior year, I just got into more and more abusive and destructive relationships until I finally, you know, was not in the church and got engaged to a man who drank a hell of a lot, worked for my father, drank a hell of a lot and was very mean when he drank. And someone pointed me in the way of Al-Anon and I crawled in, please excuse me, saying, tell me if he's an alcoholic because there's no way I would ever be with an alcoholic only to realize besides the church, there's a myriad of reasons. It's all over my dad's family, at least. And I also would look at all these people in the rooms and this is so awful to say. And I think, oh, these poor people with such low self-esteem. Right. Oh my gosh. Having no clue how battered and damaged and self-loathing I was and self-punishing. Right. Even right. though I had almost jumped off a bridge, been anorexic, right. you know, did a lot of drugs and let people be really mean to me. Yeah. So, so, so you, let's go back a little bit. You, so you drift away. When do mm-hmm. you think you were away? When do you, th- how old were you or how, when do it's you think you? Like between the age of 17 and 20, 21, okay. you know, in 17, I was a Mooney. 18, I was a Mooney, but I would drop his hands, you know, when we were walking down in Little Italy and see someone carrying flowers. You're like, 19, I'm starting to do other stuff. And I would say I had been a Mooney, okay. you know, 20, but, but it's still, you know, very deeply, deeply ingrained in me. What did your relationship look like with your mom during that time? Oh, it was bad. <laughs> um, yeah. First... First, you know, she was locking me up in rooms and screaming at me, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. She hated my boyfriend, perhaps understandably. Um, Because of all of this, we got very, very distant. And uh, yeah, it was was tough because in her her mind, I was, um, you know, dying spiritually, right? I was was all but dead, right? And so she would have done anything to save me. And we also had a very, you know, the, the summer before my father sent me to music camp, my mom sent me out to Seattle to proselytize, to witness for the summer, because she spent all this time saying, Lisa, you're angry. You're angry at me for living, leaving you. We have to talk about this. And I would say, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not angry. So there's like, when I left the church on top of all that, there was all these 
you know, at that point, a decade of pain, anger, sadness, you know, for the times and she wasn't there and wouldn't be there and wouldn't come see us. And, you know, there was one point where she lived in the building and we were no longer allowed in the building and we would come to the building in the, on a Sunday morning to say, can, can Mim come down and say hi for a minute? And, and she would send out a message, I can't come down, I'm busy. And we'd like leave and maybe come see her the next week, right? So there was a lot of layers of stuff to, that still gets worked out. Yeah. And, and what was Robbie doing at the time, your brother? Robbie. So Robbie, <laughs> so he, I went to school up at Cornell. He went to school at Drew in Madison, New Jersey. He's a year ahead of me. And when he, so Drew had a seminary and in the seminary, there were Moonies going to school just to, you know, to become ordained as reverends whom he knew. So I was at Cornell, which was huge. And there were Moonies there, but there weren't a lot, there wasn't really anyone who knew me really well. At some point someone came, but at that point I just stayed away from him. But Robbie was surrounded by, in a very small school, by people who knew him. So as he likes to say, he could not do anything. And then as soon as he, he was done, as soon as he was graduated from Drew, he sat my mom down. He's like, I'm out. I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. Whereas we'd like, I like, we jokingly say, I still haven't told my mom I'm out. Like, I think she knows, <laughs> but I still, like, I never do the like, that's it, I'm done. I yeah, just, again, just, just slowly showing up, you know, <laughs> slowly disappeared. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And um, what, what's your relationship like with your mom now? Wow, that's such a loaded question. Um, it has gone over the years, close, really distant, close, really distant, close, really distant. Um, my mom, my mom had a history, uh, uh, used to be someone referred to it as ambivalent attachment. She'd get really kind of close and she'd mm. freak out and run away and get really close and freak out and run away. And you put that layer that on top of someone whose mom left, right? So every time she'd run away, it would be like, you're doing it again. Yeah. And um, I will say that very recently, I finally said, you know, she's a very good grandmother. She's been in my life since the kids were born. She's been great in many ways, but I finally said, I can't do this anymore because you're going to say or do things that I would never say or do to my kids. And when you do it, maybe it's my bad, but I get so cut and so hurt and so scarred and devastated because it lays right on top of so many scars you know, that I can't do it anymore. Cause she used to say things like, well, I hope you get over that sometime soon and stuff like that. Right. Right. And then with the publishing of the book, I think somehow my mom is more able to see actually the impact of the choices mm, she made and what she did, because she would say things like beforehand. So when I was on Megan Kelly, they interviewed my mom and a couple of people to make sure I wasn't lying. And they said to my mom, your daughter says that you abandoned them. Is that what you think? To which my mom said, I know that's what my kids say. That's not how I saw it at the time. Right. And as the kids, you go, what are the ways there to see it? (laughs) Can we please discuss all of the ways in which you may or may not have seen these bad actions? Right. You know, and then, and she would also do these things. She would connect with some of the kids that she took care of when they were babies. And she'd call my brother. I should call Robbie and I and say, they're so traumatized from their parents leaving them. And we'd say, yeah, they are. Like, so there was this, I used to, I finally got to the point where I thought, I don't think she can get it because if she right. gets it, it will probably crack her. And I right. don't need her to crack. I right. don't and need her to crack. That's a really, really good point. And something that, you know, I think has worked, that I did a lot of work around as well in therapy, yeah. Yeah. which is that, you know, I came into program as you did and did all this work, did all this therapy. And then I turned around and asked the people who around me, to admit things they had no tools to admit. Yeah, exactly. And I I wanted them to come, I wanted them to, you know, 
dive into these the depths of these truths and and something I could have never done had I not had those coping yeah. tools and and it and I I had to over time realize that that was an unfair that that was an unfair thing to do that cracking someone open without them having those tools to get through it and the the nurturing and all the things that I had really wasn't actually a loving kind thing yeah. Yeah. And that's, so that's what I got. I didn't need her. I didn't need her to crack, but I also didn't need to put myself right. out there to get right. it. And, but then I will say with the publishing of the book, something in it cracked. Right. And so she has apologized in a way she's never done before. She has taken responsibility in a way she's never done before. She has shown up for me in a way she's never done before. And she recently said to me, cause we are incredibly close at this very moment. And she turned to me one point and she said, if I mess this up, where she is, but if I mess this up, that's it, right? And I'm like, yeah, that probably is it. If you like, if you if you flip, like, it's not you have to be perfect, right? If yeah. you flip out or do something or go away, that's okay. But just talk to me about it. If you yeah. do or say or do those things and have no realization of what you just said and how much you've discount, like those things you used to do, yeah, I probably can't ever try this again, right? Yeah. But but we're at this very moment. Knock on everything, you know. My therapist is like, "Okay, we'll see." With the fingers crossed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let's all let's all be careful here. But she is showing up in a way she never has. And actually, just only a little while ago, she said to me, "Do you think I was brainwashed?" And I said, "Do you think? Like, you wouldn't have <laughs> you wouldn't have done what you did. You wouldn't have left us. You wouldn't have let people not let us see you. You yeah. wouldn't have let people treat us like they did." if you had full mental capacities, right? So not that that gives you a free slide, but you weren't, you weren't well, you weren't whole, you weren't you. Yeah. So of course you were brainwashed, call it what you will, of course. Because it's very hard to admit one, is, one had been brainwashed. It's very hard for any former to admit that. But look, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't have said, no, I'm going to take care of these babies instead of asking someone else to watch them for two minutes so I can give my kids a hug for a week, for the rest yeah. of the week, right? You, would, yeah. you wouldn't have done that. You yeah. wouldn't have done that if you had the ability to think as a right. person. So. Right. Because there's not a, you know, it's not that she was a sociopath. So obviously, yeah. you know, obviously yeah. there was a change in thinking. What is her relationship with organized movements or religion at this point? She don't believe in them very much either. <laughs> did she yeah. leave? When did she leave? She left. She left when my oldest kid was born. She, um... And she likes to say, I couldn't even be a good Mooney. I couldn't do that well. She, my oldest, she, she lived down in DC at the time and I lived up in Connecticut and I had my first child and my mom was not working in the church. But she was living with the church and was a Mooney, but she's not working in the church. And she told her job that when, when my daughter has a baby, I'm going to take a week off and go help my daughter. And she did that and she came back and they fired her. And so then she was trying to figure out what to do. And at that point, She's like she's always worked with kids, and she's run nursery schools and preschools for the church. And there was a master's in early childhood special ed at NYU, and I said you should apply. And so, at the age of oh, 55, 56, something like that, if I thought about it, she fifty three, she went and applied to NYU and got her master's in special ed and moved up north and you know, started working in the Head Start program and and slowly drifted away from yeah. the church. And you know, I used to say to people, anything can happen because if you had told me when my mom was in that she would ever leave. I would have said, no way in hell would my mother ever leave the church. But she did. After 22 or so years, she pulled herself out and started a new life. Did she... So she did get She did get married, right? She did get married, yes. And did she have more children? No, thank God. She I, she was pregnant once, and thank God she missed... I mean, it would be wonderful to have a sibling, but it would, you know, it just right. would have added to the pile, right? Right, yeah. right, right. And, uh, and the, the husband, did they 
how did he come with her out or did they stick around? Uh, or- no, they got divorced before she left the church. So already it was, it was all slowly falling, falling apart. Yeah. Okay. I have no idea where he is at all. Are there practicing? Are there people practicing now? Heck yeah. So the church, Reverend Moon died a number of years ago and the church has splintered into three groups. His wife, Hakcha Han, runs one faction of the church. I believe two of his sons run another faction of the church and they're all arguing over who's right. And then another two sons, I don't know if you've heard of the sanctuary church. They're the ones who, they have a, a church in the Poconos in Pennsylvania and they bring uh, AR-15s, rifles, to their wedding ceremonies and ceremonies overall because uh, Reverend Moon's son, Sean Moon, believes that the rod of iron in the Bible means you should be armed with a rifle. So okay. I like to say, here's people who believe that this man is, you know, the Messiah and they're armed with rifles. Yeah. I mean, that's scary. Yeah. 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 So, um, okay. So then, so she leaves and what about your dad? My dad. So my dad lived his crazy life of, you know, sex, drugs, drink, all of that. Again, like I, and I called it Alan, I'm like, there's no way. And <laughs> my, my grandfather had been sober for the last five years of his life. I never knew this. My dad's dad. And my dad and my grandmother used to say that that's, he was nice now because he had friends because he was an AA. Right. Um, my grandmother was addicted to every pill under the sun from what I've heard. And my dad drank and drugged and drank and drugged and drank and drugged until many things happened. But in, he was 64 and he had a stroke. To, and when, they, when he finally got to the hospital, it took him a couple of days to get to the hospital because, because it did. And when the doctor said what happened, my dad said I partied too much. So too much cocaine, blew out a divot in his brain. And see, he's now a very old 76-year-old man in a nursing home in New Jersey, living a very, very, very sad, sad life. And yes, when I see him, I do give him alcohol and I do give him cigarettes because at this point, it's all he's got, right? Yeah. Um, but he is, a, and I am his primary caregiver. It's funny when, you know, many years ago, when he had the stroke and my mother-in-law said, well, you have to take care of him. I'm like, no, I don't, mom. And then she read the book and she's like, no, you don't. I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I don't. But I, you know, I adore my dad. He, yeah. You know, I understand where his disease comes from. I understand right. why he is who he is. And he's a not nice word a lot of times, but he's also got a huge heart, you yeah. know, but he just hides it really, really, really well. Um, but so, yeah, so that's, so he's right now, he's about an hour away from me and I'm working hard to try and move him closer so we can actually see him a little bit more, but, yeah. but he's never, he's just, he's just not an easy person. He's still, you know, when he's first in the, he's in a nursing home because he's in a assisted living facility and he smoked in his room so many times and lit so many fires and burned so many holes in the carpet that they finally had to put him in the nursing home. And when they put him in the nursing home, they put him in a wheelchair and he lost all ability to move. But it, you mean, he just, he, you know, for a while he wouldn't shower. So we just look like a homeless person living in a nursing home in Princeton, New Jersey. So it's a very sad, sad yeah. thing. So yeah. luckily I have compassion. He can be very cutting, but I have a lot of compassion for him. So I'm, I'm graced with compassion for him. Yeah. It's amazing what we can do when we do intensive work on ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can. I have the ability to, to love him just, you know, like, you know, I, I have some physical issues going on and like now he'll call me and leave a message. Just, well, I want to know you're okay. At which point I cry and yeah. I tell people that he called and they're like, Oh my God, he called. Right. And so then I call him back and he's completely selfish and right. care less about me when I get him on the phone and you're like, okay, <laughs> I got both. I got both. Right. 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 Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock 
after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, LionRock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. So you ended up in Al-Anon in your senior year of college, is that right? No, I ended up in Al-Anon just after, in 80s. Graduated in 85, started dating my alcoholic fiance in 86, ended up engaged and in Al-Anon in 87. Okay. And yeah. So yeah. So November of 87. What when I crawled. You, when you crawled to Al-Anon, talk to yeah. us about getting to Al-Anon and, and how, you know, why Al-Anon and how, how, how that yeah. happened. I, so I was living with my fiance and he was working for my dad. He's a chef at my dad's restaurant and he would, he was working the day shift, which was bad, but then he worked the night shift. And so he would go out and he would drink to all hours of the night and, and he'd come home and wake me up and we'd fight or I'd go out looking for him and I'd drink with him and I did drugs with him. And it was just, it was that insane. Mm-hmm. I'm not an alcoholic and I'm not an addict of substance. I've played with that many times in my mind, but I'm really not. I can stop, right? It's, it's not that, that's not my addiction. Although the many times I don't drink for a lot of reasons, but I was in that, you know, the alcoholic is clinging to the bottle and I'm clinging to the alcoholic. And I was not sleeping and my body started to get weak and go numb. Half of my body shut down and mm. I ended up, you know, and I'm thinking maybe something's not right here. And, uh, and my cousin, my mom's cousin, he shows up many times in the book. He was engaged to a woman who is now in recovery. And he sat me down, we went out to lunch and he said, go to Al-Anon. And I'm like, I don't need Al-Anon. I would never be with an alcoholic. <laughs> go to Al-Anon. And you know, and, the, and the, it was shame, absolute shame, like fear, shame. You know, I should know better. I mean, I have a degree from Cornell. I'm smart. I have a good job. I looked so functional on the top. Right, right. And I, again, I did not realize how absolutely cut into pieces and the, the level of shame and self-loathing that still can erupt, right? That mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. what I learned, what I learned from everything happened was I deserve to die, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, that is the, the deepest right. I truth in my brain. And so it was just terrified to go. I went right before Thanksgiving. No, it was right after Thanksgiving because his sisters came for Thanksgiving. And when he went out to buy something, they said, he's an alcoholic and you need to get him sober. We need you to get him sober. And then <laughs> you were job. like, oh, great. Oh, great. Yeah. And then, and then I, um, yeah. So then I crawled into Al-Anon and they, well, first of all, they don't tell you if he's an alcoholic. Yeah, they I don't, know. right? I they know. don't. You're like, give me I the rules, it. give me the list, yeah. and they don't. I know, especially like, for those of us who come in from like a, a thriving in the academic background, yeah. we're like, okay, where are the worksheets? Where, you know, I, I need the rules. I need the right. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? Yeah, yeah. But all I knew was that my life was unmanageable, and I felt safer there, right? And. Yep. To this day, you know, I, I still have my one day at a time book, my ODAT with a bazillion names and phone numbers because everybody gives you their first name and your phone number, right? And you call people and, you know, and only one of them do I know where they are because I happen to connect this person outside of the rooms and I know their last name, but everybody else saved my life and I have no, I, mean, I don't even know where they are. But I crawled into the rooms and 
I felt better when I was there. I knew my life was crazy. I was engaged to be married. I had at that point, I think, postponed the marriage. And I, you know, did my first unofficial 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. And my second unofficial 90 and 90. And even if I could go for five minutes, I would crawl out of the office because I was working a crazy job and go for five minutes and, you know, cry and cry and cry Mm -hmm. and cry and cry and learn truths that to this day, I, first of all, I teach in my leadership program and people write them down. My leadership and cons- I have a leadership consulting and executive coaching company. And when I teach these things, people write them down. I'm like, just go to 12 step. It's fine. Yeah. But um, <laughs> like learn these truths, right? Learn, you know, expectations or premeditated resentments. And I didn't cause this. I can't control this. I can't cure this. And, you know, acceptance is the answer to all my problems. But all these things that to this day, I still need to know. And I, I learn these truths and start to feel better. But I am it's not necessarily a good thing about me, but because of the way I grew up and who I am, anything you put in front of me, I will do no matter what. Mm. So I was, I'm going to marry him. I said, I marry him. I'm going to marry him. I right. can do it. I have Alan on. I'll be fine. Right. And I was at a meeting lunchtime in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, you know, sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. He came home. He woke me up. Crazy, 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 complaining about my qualifier or, you know, sharing my story. And, um, Somebody came up to me and he said, there are no victims. There are only volunteers. Mm. And all of a sudden I thought, maybe I don't have to do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. Or maybe I don't have to prove how strong I am by marrying my alcoholic. And I decided to move out and, you know, was told not to tell him till the night before, told him the night before everything blew up. And then the next day, people to this day, who I will always be grateful for, literally came and picked me up and carried mm-hmm. me out. hmm carried me out because I could not. They're like, is this yours? Yes. Is this yours? I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I've been to that party. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that began the process of, you know, as I said, I think to you in the beginning, like when you go into the rooms and you tell your story and people's jaws drop, you're like, oh, I guess it's kind of weird. Right. It's kind of a lot. Right. And that became the process of first looking at myself and thinking I was only damaged. Yeah. I was just damaged material. I was only my pain. I was only my suffering. I was only my scars. I was only my abandonment issues. I was only my low self-esteem. And that was, you know, 1986 and on. And I'm happy to say now that I know that that's not true either, yeah. right? That yeah. belies anything else. I am so many more things and I have scars. Yeah. But I'm right. not my damage and I'm not my... I have damage, but that's okay. That's okay. And it does, it really feels that way when you come in, you know, I am, I am all this stuff. And, and, you know, I remember, (laughs) I remember getting out of treatment and being early recovery and I was all I knew how to talk about really, because, (laughs) you know, you know, you just, you just spew, oh, hi, I'm Ashley. I'm in recovery. These are my drugs of, you know, I mean, you know, at the grocery store, right. You just don't, you, that's all you are. You don't have anything else. I, and over the years, you know, you build that self-esteem, you build a you know, that you build the sense that I am, I have scars, I have damage and I am Ashley and I am all these other things. And it's a yeah. really incredible feeling. It's an incredible feeling. And I mean, my progress has, recovery has changed and grown in so many ways through so many processes and trauma work and all of that. And, and there's recently, there's, there are definitely um, ways I respond to certain things because of my specific mm-hmm. trauma and the church and a lot of stuff. And my husband will say, I wish it were easier for you. And I finally said to him, you know what? I don't even wish it were easier for me anymore because I no longer need to recover better. Right. If this is all it is. This is fine. There's not like a a better I have to be or a more healed I have to be or a because again my demons 
you know, if, you know, if you go someplace and people like say, what are the, you know, 10 worst things that happened to you? I'm always like only 10, <laughs> only 10. And then I'll give it to the someone because right. I've done this in like certain types of trauma therapy. Yeah. I'll give the list and I'm like, but just so you know, I'm fine. Like yeah. if you hear my list, I don't sound fine, but I'm fine. They yeah. just, you know, I have scars and they get, you know, when it rains, they hurt kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I have a bad yeah. knee. That's all. I have a bad knee. I'm yeah. not a bad knee. I have a bad knee. And so. it, and, it, and it takes a long time to get there. You know, I yeah. mean, it makes sense that, yeah. you know, 33 years ago, you know, that's <gasps> when you, <laughs> I um, didn't think of that. Thank you. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm, I was born in 86. So I was, <laughs> you, that was uh, easy for you. Huh? Yeah, it was, it was easy for me. I'm pretending I can do math. Wow. So, you know, but it makes sense that you, that you've, you know, you've grown to be so many more things. How did you, so you, you, you left the, the fiance and you ended up getting married and having children. What's the relationship? You, you found someone you love and who respects you. How old were you or when did you guys get married? I got married, I like to say when I was in my 20s because it was two weeks before my 30th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. In my 20s. Yeah. Um, it was a, a friend of one of my best friends from high school who we met and he's a good person. It's a good relationship. There's always issues, you oh, know, yeah. and anything. And I like to say, if you have enough of a, a story that you can write a memoir, yeah. it's very easy for the relationship to be built on, well, you're the one with the issues. Right. right? And that, that was an interesting thing that took a long, because I, like, like, I went into thinking, you have the rules because I'm messed up, right? And right, right. a long time to iron that out a bit. But, uh, but yeah, so I, and then got married in uh, 1993. And then I had my first child in 96 and my second child in 2002 with a big gap of trying in the middle, which is also an interesting process. And I, I will surely say that I healed through loving my children. Mm. That's, I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I mean, and a lot of therapy and EMDR work yeah. and a yeah. lot of mindfulness and a lot of tools and a lot of program and a lot of stuff. But my ability, you know, I did not know that I could be a good mom. You know, when I got married, my husband was like, what if you leave? What if you leave the kids? Right. We were both right. terrified that I wouldn't, I didn't have good role models that I wouldn't know what to do. But, um, so I always say, I say to my kids, the only, only goal was that my kids would know they were loved to which you got to know my 17 year old, but he'll say, I don't know you love me. I know. I know Mimi loves me and I know Papa loves me and I know dad loves me, but I don't know you love me, which means he absolutely knows that he's yeah. adored and he's yeah. totally safe and secure in that love. Right. And that's my only goal was that they knew that they were loved. Cause I didn't, I just didn't cause yeah. everything that happened and everything went down and who they were, I never knew they loved me. So yeah. Last thing I want to cover is why do you think Al-Anon saved you and got into you to recovery? And was it coupled, did you do therapy first? Yeah, no. Um, so when I crawled into Al-Anon, I think I ended up in therapy, but it wasn't with the therapist that really worked for me. Although I, I was at the same time, I think I was also in group therapy. And I still remember the group therapist saying to me one time when we had a single session, she said, you know, you have to integrate the church into yourself, into your life in order to heal. And I said, no blank and way. Yeah. But she was right. Yeah. <laughs> but at that right. point, the only way I was alive was like, this, this never happened. I'm not going to talk right. about it. Right. Um, so when I, so Al-Anon was the first place I went and why, why did it help? I hit my bottom, right? I was, my life was unmanageable. I was engaged to be married to someone who was not very nice and who, you know, I was not sleeping. I like was losing 
my body. I was totally not functional anymore. And it was, at first, it was just a place where I felt better when I went. And then I, by mistake, crawled into a, stumbled into an ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics meeting. Mm. And they read the laundry list and you're like, yes, yes, always, doesn't everybody? No, yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh my God. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. which is, that was, and it was even bigger when I heard the list of what being in a cult does to your brain. Cause I was like, oh my God, that's my brain. But I remember them reading that list and being like, isn't everybody like that? Right. Um, and that's when I first realized that it's not just my fiance, it's my family. And I began to look at some of my, you know, yes, my father drinks and drugs every day. Yes, his behavior changes. Yes, he's actually nice when he's, uh, when he's drunk, right? He says he loves me when he's drunk. Right, no, right. I have to love you. That doesn't count. I like you. And that's all that matters mm. is what my dad liked to say. So, it, and, then, and then the tools, right? The, the slogans, the support, the people, the, the community, the, the sense that you're not alone, right? And granted, I was still alone because, again, I would tell my story and people's jaws would drop or people right. would walk, like you said, is, is, is AA a cult, right? People would walk in and be like, oh my God, I came to Alan and I thought, what is this, the Moonies? And then I would like burst into tears. Oh. <laughs> I, it's like, even in the safe space, it's not safe, right? Because right. that was the 80s and they were still always talking about the Moonies. Right. But it was the, you know, the experience, strength, and hope, the, the 12 steps, the, you know, I grew up with a God. When I left, I could not have a belief in God. When I got into Al-Anon, I, I'm a very spiritual person and I could find a higher power who I now have, it's God with a little G and I use the pronoun they for God as well. You know, I could, I could bring that back into my life. I could bring so much that I had to shut down, right? right. And, and again, all the slogans and all the readings and all the things that could you know, I, I teach a lot of my clients, like our brain is a muscle. We think it controls us, but we can control it. And it taught me how to recognize my stinking thinking, stop my stinking thinking, get help for my stinking thinking, like all of that. It just gave me a way to live life that, that made sense. And it, and it gave me hope for the first, I mean, I didn't even realize I was not without hope. I was without hope, but it gave me hope. Right. 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 You know, when people ask why I wrote the book and why I'm putting it out here so strong, I do have three messages which are related to this. One is, which is not related, that extremist situations exist. They're prevalent. They're extremely intoxicating. Mm-hmm. And they're extremely dangerous. And they're there. They're all over. They're more prevalent now. Two, for anyone who feels hopeless or damaged beyond repair, there is hope, right? There's, there's so often there's hope even when we feel we have no hope. And three you know, from my own life, from my friends, from the work I do as a coach, I believe as a species, we're so hard on ourselves. We're self-critical and self-judging and self-embasting and all these things we would never say to anyone else, right? They say, Alan, would you say that to your best friend, right? And we just need a huge dose of self-love and self-compassion, which is what I learned. I learned in Alan that I didn't have that and how to have that. Yeah. That's what I got in my recovery, a, a huge sense of, you know, as I was watching Tara Brock, a, a meditation teacher. And she's like, I put my hand on my heart and say, it's okay, sweetheart. It's okay. Because yeah. so many of us did not hear that when we were kids in whatever way. And so I learned to put my hand on my heart and say, it's okay. You're okay. It'll be okay. Let it go. All that, all that stuff that stops the crazies in yeah. my brain. So, Well, you are an amazing woman, remarkable. And um, I am so impressed and just... I find your story to be, you know, I see so much intergenerational trauma and I love that you 
were able to get out and then do the work and then have the children and you didn't pass this stuff on to your kids. And that's so cool. I mean, that is, that's such an amazing gift that you gave them that piece of recovery and to have a parent in recovery. So you're, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And I have to say, you know, you get into, you get into program and they say the disease stops here. Mm-hmm. And that was my, my mantra. The disease stops here. That being said, I'll tell you two things. One is it doesn't stop all the way. <laughs> Sorry, your kids are young, yeah. but I'm going to tell you. So yeah. literally my oldest kid ended up after a while seeing my therapist. And I was like, why does my kid have my issues? They have this idyllic childhood. They have everything. I had all this trauma. They like their worst trauma. I mean, maybe it was something else, but the worst trauma was do they get a second dessert, right? Right, right. And my therapist said, it's called generational trauma. It's epigenetics, right? Yep. Yep. You, my it's trauma is like at yep. 15, theirs is at like seven or five, mm-hmm. right? But it, mm-hmm. And I say that because but I that was makes devastated, a right? And yeah. I don't want, I don't like, and I say that to the second gens from, you know, from the church, right? Don't think that you're going to be so healthy that nothing will affect them. That's why Holocaust right. survivors kids have issues about it, right? Right. No matter how healthy we are, it's in our DNA, it's epigenetics, and it's in how we, you know, I probably over-nurtured my kids. Absolutely, I did. So, but that being said, my kid, my, my second kid will just only tease me, but my older kid says, yes, it did. The disease stopped. You stopped it, right? Yeah. And so, so thank you, because that was, that was my goal, to, not, yeah. to yeah. not unintentionally or to not like just pass it all on. All right, right. I mean, yeah. it's never going to be perfect. Yeah. Everybody, no one gets out of their childhood without some sort of trauma or, yep. you know, so I, I think it's really about making it not repeating. You know, the best we can do is not repeat the same mistakes and try really hard to make our new ones as small as possible. Exactly. And to love. Yeah. I mean, my God is love, truly. Is. Yeah. And so I love my kids and they know it and then I'm good. I'm good. Well, I'm really grateful to know you, Lisa, and thank you so much. Your book is called To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence. Yeah. yeah. And it is available everywhere books are sold. I bought it on Amazon. Yes. It's at Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. You can go to your local bookstore. You can go on IndieBound.org and they will get it, tell you where to get it at a bookstore, support your local bookstore. But yeah, it's Kindle Unlimited. Yeah. I'm just I'm trying to spread a message. So anything awesome. and anybody who wants to connect or talk about it, or have me do a reading, I will do anything to spread my messages, almost anything to spread my messages. So, <laughs> awesome. Just to be clear, almost. <laughs> I, like, I like the boundaries. And your Instagram, do you want people following any social media? Absolutely. All my, so my website is Lisa Cohn Writes, and it's L-I-S-A-K-O-H-N-W-R-I-T-E-S dot com and all of my social media. I'm on Instagram, Lisa Cohn writes. I'm on Twitter, Lisa Cohn writes. And I'm on Facebook, Lisa Cohn writes. And so, yeah, if you can, if you Google Lisa Cohn, L-I-S-A-K-O-H-N, I will be the first three or four pages that come up because there was such media hits when the book came out because cults are hot. So it's easy to find me and I encourage people to find me if they want to. I love to connect. I love when people reach out and share their stories and we all grow and heal together. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. 
Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 